All right, John chapter 13, uh, I'll allow you to be seated while I read the text. We're going to look at um, uh, this classic text of Jesus washing uh, the disciples' feet. Uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taken a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do not, uh, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and he resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. And when it does take place, that you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one, who, uh, who, the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And then in verse 34 and 5, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all will know, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And this is God's word. God. Well, Donnie already mentioned the first part of my sermon. That was the definition of Mondi. Um, some of you know I send my sermon notes out uh, usually by Tuesday. I'm uh, pretty much ready for Sunday, and I do that for a number of reasons, one of which is so the translators can get prepared to try to make sense of the sermon uh, that, that's coming on Sunday. And that's incidentally why I use so many baseball illustrations, because we have so many Dominicans here. And so they, they, they understand those illustrations, all right? Um, but uh, Monday does mean uh, commandment, which comes from this text, a new commandment uh, that I give to you. And John here is really turning a corner in his gospel. Several years ago, we worked our way through John's gospel. And it's just a fascinating thing to consider that the first 12 verses of John's gospel occupies three years uh, of Jesus's ministry. And then chapters 13 to the end is basically all around the passion of Christ. And that alone illustrates for us the reason why Jesus came. Right? He was a man born to die. And it also shows you that the Gospels are, are not really, uh, 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 in a strict sense, biographies. Uh, they're, they're like biographies in that they're true, but the writers are doing more than just giving us a biography of Jesus. They're writing a Gospel. It's a whole new genre 
that they're into. It's good news. And so they focus so much of their attention in the Gospels around uh, the events of Easter, around the, the Holy Week uh, that we're, we're, we're in right now. And you see that sort of thing also emphasized in the Apostles' Creed, as we see that Jesus, we go from, he was born of a Virgin Mary, straight to he suffered under Pontius Pilate. You know, like, didn't he do anything in between? You know, like he, he was the man that was born uh, to die. And Easter is good news today because our greatest problem has already been solved. And the gospel writers are, are they, they're in a hurry to kind of get us to uh, this particular week that we're in right now. Another thing that's significant about John 13 in John's gospel is that the focus shifts from the wider audience to Jesus' disciples. And he is now preparing these future leaders of the church uh, to take uh, th their role in this new messianic community. And so there's a lot of intimate teaching. There's a lot of uh, Jesus just being with these disciples hours before his death. And in John 13, we're, we're on Thursday. He will be crucified on Friday. And we have some material that is unique to John that only John gives us. And we have a real emphasis now from John 13 to the end of the, the book around the, the theme of love, the theme of love. You might say that John 1 to 12 the themes have to do with light and life. And now in chapter 13 to chapter 21, love appears some 45 times. Jesus loves the Father, the Father loves him, Jesus loves his disciples, and the disciples are to love one another. John is overwhelmed with this love. In fact, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's amazed that Jesus would love him like this. And this story of Jesus washing feet is just a, a drama that we, 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 it remains in our minds forever. And it's such a vivid example of the humility of Christ, of the love of Christ, of um, the symbolic nature of this event, how it points us to the cross and what Jesus would do. Because the, the foot washing is more than Jesus just telling us all to go be humble. Like, like he is saying that, and, and we are to follow him, um, but the, the cleansing that he describes here, as Peter does, he, he can't figure it out, what Jesus is doing. Uh, it clearly has more to do than just uh, cleaning someone's feet. So Jesus here is, is at this Passover, at this Last Supper event, which, which John interestingly doesn't des describe. Uh, he describes more of the meaning of the ceremony throughout these chapters than the ceremony of the Lord's Supper itself. But only he gives us uh, what happens around this meal, and that is Jesus washing these feet. Now we know that practically foot washing was a very needed activity in this culture. You can imagine no paved roads, animals everywhere, people's uh, feet are walking everywhere, covered in dirt and uh, all sorts of things. And I imagine the disciples had some really nasty feet. Uh, and, and even if they had good feet, all feet are really proof that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Um, every guy who's even tried fast acting to acting, uh, uh, recognizing it, it's quite a job to, to clean feet. I would imagine most of the spouses or most of the wives in this room uh, tonight would not say that you fell in love with your husband when you looked at his feet, um, right? You, you love him despite his feet probably. Um, but, but all of this this, this, this event of the divine Son of God stooping to do what was reserved for the lowest class for these disciples 
is such a display of humility and foreshadows the ultimate display of humility as Jesus goes to the cross for us. I just want to give you tonight, church, three encouragements from this passage. First of all, remember his love. Secondly, receive his cleansing. And thirdly, reflect his example. First of all, remember his love, verse 1. This is one of the most encouraging verses in the gospel of John, I think. Now before the, uh, the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Before the Passover feast, I take this to be the Passover meal. As I said, John doesn't include the, the, the Lord's Supper meal. But he is explaining the, the meaning, significance to which it points. And if you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, which we refer to as the synoptic gospels, meaning they have uh, similar uh, stories and inclusions, you do see that there's a, there are a bundle of events that are all happening here. Uh, all of them emphasize Judas's betrayal, uh, along with Peter's denial. And Luke tells us, and we'll get there hopefully next Easter, Lord willing, um, Seriously, that's when I plan on ending it on Easter because Luke 24 is around Easter. Um, that there is a debate around this time about who's the greatest. And so that's what the disciples are doing. Jesus is hours before his death and they're dis di disputing about who's going to be the greatest. And so I think John is, is weaving these themes together of Judas's betrayal, Peter's denial, and the disciples wanting to know who is the greatest among them all. And Jesus says, now his hour has come. This phrase that pops up in John all the time. You remember when the wine ran out at the wedding. And uh, Jesus responds to his mom, woman, uh, my hour has not yet come. Uh, not, not what I would recommend you saying to your mother, but he's, he's Jesus, right? Um, <laughs> chapter 7, verse 30, he says that his hour had not come when they're wanting to arrest him. Chapter 8, verse 20, my hour has not yet come. And then when the Greeks show up and want to see Jesus, he says to his disciples, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And now we read, Jesus knew that his hour had come. And then in the great prayer in John 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. And all of that shows you that Jesus was always in charge of his death, that he was not a victim, but that he was sovereign over his death. You do not take my life, I lay it down, he says, right? But now his hour had come, and he says, having loved his own who were in the world, he's loved them. Everything that you would read in the first 12 chapters of John, you could hang over it, Jesus loving his disciples. Having loved his own who were in the world, and you notice the emphasis now, as I said, is on his own. Jesus loves his sheep. This is the language that was used earlier in John chapter 10. Now, as a Christian, you know, I'm called to love everyone, even my enemies, even Yankee fans and, uh, you know, um, those sorts of folks. Um, but, and every man and woman I'm to, called to love, but I love my wife in a unique way. I love my own in a unique way. And Jesus has a general love for the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But he has a unique love for his sheep. Unique love for his bride. And that love here is on display. Paul says, he loved me and gave himself for me. And he loved them to the end. What a wonderful phrase here. He loved them to the end. Is telos, or telos is a word to, 
the end of all ends, or the, the, um, that this, this, this could just simply mean he loved them until the cross, but I think it, it's expanding beyond their own lives to the end of ends forever. Jesus loved them. And my friends, if you're in Christ, he loves you to the end. Nothing you can ever do will get you out of that love. Nothing will ever separate you. As we noted the other week, even when you die, you are still united to Jesus Christ. He loves us to the end. And remarkably here, we even see in this story, don't we, that Jesus has love for his enemies. There's a vivid display of what it looks like to love. If you knew this guy in the room was going to betray you and hand you over wrongfully and lead you to this awful death, would you wash his feet? No, that's right. That's why I like kids in the church right there. (laughs) Argument eight for having kids in worship. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if you remember a few years ago when I was doing Psalm 27. I was like, if you could ask the Lord for one thing, it was Psalm 27, one thing I asked for the Lord, what would it be? And one of the kids yelled, Pokemon. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus washes this enemy's feet. I would have, you know, put a falafel in his, his food. I would have hit him in the, or put a, a laxative, I meant to say, in his, his uh, in a, a laxative in his falafel. Uh, I, I, I would, it wouldn't, you're like, I'm hitting him with the basin, or you're at least going to move around him. And, and that's not what he does even with Judas. So my friends, what I want you to see here is Jesus starting off this, you know, the night before his death. He loves us to the end. And that's enough of the sermon we could say right there, but I want to say a few more things. Receive his cleansing. Verses 2 to 11, you see here now that, that there's more going on than Jesus just performing a practical function of, of, of washing their feet, which these knuckleheads forgot to do, uh, they, they should have done uh, for Jesus. But you see that he's doing it, and Luke tells, or John tells us that it's already in the middle of the, the meal, during supper. Which would be really strange, right? Kind of gross, actually. Can you, you guys want to try that? Washing feet when you have dinner. Like, uh, you know, changing your oil and eating corn on the cob at the same time. Uh, imagine that. Um, no, it was customary for, to wash people's feet when the guests arrived, but this was... This, this hadn't happened yet. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to clean their feet, but also, again, he is teaching them something. And you see that it is Jesus who is the one who cleanses, and he alone can cleanse us. You know, what this is pointing to, verse 2, during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. John is stressing here the, the nature of Jesus, the exalted one. He has all authority. The Father had given all things into his hands. It's divine origin that he come from God in his future glory. He was going back to God. Only Jesus can give us this kind of cleansing. And that's the tragedy when you look at other philosophies or world religions today. Almost all of them have some form of cleansing. Some ritual, some uh, bathings, karma, or some holy steps you walk up. But we know that Jesus here is foreshadowing the only way we can truly get guilt and shame off of us 
through his cleansing power. And we see illustrated for us in the way Jesus washes these feet how we are cleansed, namely the cross. In, in fact, you could read this text with Philippians 2, 5 and following right next to it. And it's really marvelous. You see in verse 4, he rose from supper. He already did this having risen from his throne in glory and then condescends to earth, laid aside his outer garments. Paul says, though he was in the very nature of God, he emptied himself. He girded himself with a towel by taking the form of a servant, Paul says. He's taken up this servant position. He pours water into a basin and then washes their feet. And in a few hours, his blood would be poured out for the washing away of sin, or as Paul says, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then he resumes his place, drop down to verse 12. And this, again, is a picture of Jesus resuming his place back at the Father's right hand after making purification for sins. And this Savior, right now, tonight, in this moment, is still saving us in the sense that he's interceding for us. We, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved, right? Like, in, it's a wonderful thought to think that Jesus, right now, is still living to be our savior. He's still doing that saving work. And maybe you come into this room, I don't know how you come in tonight, but maybe you feel, you feel the weight of sin. or You, you, you feel the, the, in the entanglement of sin. I want you to see what a wonderful savior we have who assures us of his love, that it always lasts, and that the daily cleansing that we need, he provides graciously. And that's what he mentions in verses 6 to 11, this, this need for cleansing. And he basically says, disciples minus Judas, you already have your primary cleansing. You've already had a bath. What you really just need are your, your feet washed. And this is, this is where Peter, and we can't be too hard on them. I mean, the whole thing hadn't developed yet. <laughs> and this, this is one of the scenes where you do chuckle and, and, and realize why Jesus would say, you know what, guys, it's better that I go away. Uh, you need the Holy Spirit uh, because I don't know what else to do. Uh, I've been teaching and teaching and teaching. And uh, so verse 6, he came to Simon who says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Um, he is the master of the obvious. Yes, Columbo, he's going to wash your feet too. You know, sometimes we talk about Peter's, uh, people's inner voice and outer voice. Peter doesn't have an inner voice. He, he only has the outer voice. And he's like, Lord, are you going to wash mine too? Uh, and he tells uh, Peter in verse 7, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will. Which is a real principle still even for us in everyday life. <laughs> a lot of what the Lord is doing in our life we do not understand now, but we will afterward. And that was certainly the, 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 the truth for Peter, as he doesn't know how all the events will unfold. And so Peter, even after being told by Jesus, um, yeah, I'm going to wash your feet, he protests still, you can never wash my feet. <laughs> he just, he is, he, he is a piece of work, isn't he? When Jesus says, you know, yeah, I am, it, it's a good time not just to be quiet. And then Jesus tells him why he needs to be cleansed. Verse uh, 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The word share is the word for inheritance or place. You have no place with me. Like there is no place with Jesus. There's no inheritance with Jesus unless Jesus wash us. 
But Simon says, well, Lord, if you're going to do that, go ahead and just get my whole body. <laughs> I'm a Baptist, and so immerse me. If, if, um, if you're going to wash, just go all the way with it. And here again is, is uh, why this is more than simply a practical function. Jesus is using this as also an object lesson uh, to teach. And he says in verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And of course, he's talking here about Judas. He was not clean. Judas was not clean. And that's a tragedy for many who would profess to be a Christian. And maybe, as they say, starched and ironed, but never washed. He was around the things of Christ and yet needed the bath. He needed the fundamental cleansing. This is very practical. I mean, to put it in 21st century analogy, if you go, if you, a guy wakes up in the morning before he goes to work, he takes a shower, and uh, he, four o'clock, a friend says, Hey, why don't you come over to the house and uh, we'll have a coffee and catch up? And you, you show up at the house and say, Well, you know, um, it's great to be here. Um, do you mind if I use your restroom? Yeah, and then you go in there, and you stay in there for about an hour. And the couple's like, what's he doing in there, right? Um, and then you hear the shower, like, he's taking a shower. Who goes to somebody's house, right, to take a shower? Uh, that, that you, you only need to kind of wash your hands if you're going to uh, ha- have, have something to eat or, or drink. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying here to these guys. Peter, you don't need the bath. You've already had the bath. What you need are your feet washed, and this is a principle for all of us. Luther put it well when when he said, we need God's grace once for all, again and again, and more and more. We need it once and for all, and he's saying, guys, you've had the once and for all cleansing, except for Judas. You need the everyday cleansing. And that is the power by which we now thirdly reflect his example. We've been cleansed, we've been transformed, and so he gives the disciples these instructions. As he resumes his place, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He reminds them here of of their role in imitating himself. Truly I say to you that a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. He's already painting this portrait of servant leadership, isn't he, for these disciples. If I do this for you, you are to do this for them. Now, in some traditions, they made this an ordinance. This is not my view of of foot washing for several reasons, and one of which is it's not repeated anywhere else. You don't see the apostles doing it anywhere else in the scriptures, unlike the Lord's Supper. And in doing it, it often draws attention to the person who's actually washing the feet, which is the opposite point uh, that, that's being made. Um, oh, look how humble he is, you know. Um, that's just wonderful. Um, the, the point is that in our everyday life, we are to be washing people's feet, serving people. Not thinking that any role is beneath us, but recognizing that Jesus came as a servant and we are Jesus' people. And therefore, we take up the towel, and we serve others. And Jesus attaches a blessing to it, doesn't he? You're blessed if you do these things. 
And there's the beautiful, wonderful truth of Christian service, that the blessing is in the doing. The joy is in the serving. And so Jesus urges these guys to follow his example. And so let me just finish by encouraging all of us to follow his example tonight. Like we are called to be servant leaders. If you're, if you're a leader in any way, this is a really important passage. A leadership is not lordship. Leadership is following Jesus, setting an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus and have people come along with you. It's not to domineer over people. Rather, it is to take up a towel and do the mundane, ordinary, trivial tasks that are often associated with Christian leadership. And so here Jesus is giving us that example, that it's not about being a boss or making demands. It's about serving and loving people. Secondly, let me encourage you to seize opportunities that you have to serve others and to recognize not all of it has to go on social media, right? We don't need to call in WRAL to do a story on it, but actually just do the little things to the glory of Jesus. And that's what Christianity is about, right? This is, some people want to make the faith like a, a philosophical endeavor, and there's certainly thought that we must give to our faith, rigorous thoughts, but our faith is also intensely practical. It's intensely practical. It's one thing to have a theology of humility. It's another thing to be a humble servant. So don't just have a theology of humility and service or the church, but have the practice of humility and service, and loving people in the church. Paul underscores that kind of service when he's talking about certain kinds of widows. In 1 Timothy 5, when he says about widows that are worthy of honor, they have a reputation for good works, brought up children, shown hospitality, and washed the feet of the saints. Another great text on what it means to to walk in the way of the master. And this is why the church is so important, because we do life on life together. Uh, the executive director for Acts 29, yesterday, Brian Howard, we were on a call together, and he said that the average church in America, and I don't know where this stat comes from, um, and so I assume it's true, but uh, it it makes sense what he's saying. The average church uh, is declining, and it's, it's gone from 90 people, most churches in the nation, as you probably know, are small, 90 people to 66 people. And a lot of it, as he was saying, is being attributed to people who have just very much grown comfortable with kind of online church and and where you can can hear a sermon online, but you know what you can't do online? Wash someone's feet. And when you uh, reduce the church just to a place where you listen to sermons, then there is no need for physical embodiment and, and being with people. But the church, of course, is so much more than listening to sermons. This is not, you should say, this is where I listen to sermons. This is where I serve. That's, that's what we say uh, as the church. Well, finally, remember, church, that you are empowered to serve. If you have received this great cleansing from Jesus Christ, you have been made new. And I think that's one of the things that makes the new commandment new. When Jesus ends by saying, a new commandment that I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Like in, in some sense, this commandment is not new in that we're told in the Old Testament to love people. What is, is new is that it has now been exemplified in Jesus Christ in a new way. Love one another as I have loved you. 
And it is new in the sense that we have new power now by which to love people. And this is the way, he says, that the world will know that we are Jesus' disciples, by how we love one another. There is a real evangelistic dynamic in the church loving each other that commends the gospel to the world, which is why Francis Schaeffer called this verse the final apologetic or the ultimate proof that Christianity is real. It's not in your logical syllogism, as important and helpful as those are, but it's in the body caring for each other that puts on display the fact that the gospel really is true. And often people are drawn to the the working out of the gospel before they're attracted to the the arguments for the gospel. As they see how the gospel works out in community, then they begin to, to consider the real claims of Christianity. And we've now been empowered to do this. And isn't it a privilege to do this? It's a privilege to do this. We're not in hell tonight. And because Easter is true, we're not going there. That there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. That goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And all things are working together for our good. Even our crummy, you know, situations that we've got right now. And all of the suffering and all of the headaches and backaches. We know that this is light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. That Jesus Christ, the, the one who got up on Easter, will come again for us. And he will come and restore this broken world and make it all new. And we serve each other in light of those things, knowing those things are true. And so may God grant us grace to be that kind of church. And let me just say, you guys are, like so many of you are, such glorious, humble servants. And it's a privilege to, to be in this life together. <laughs> doing this thing together. And may God, may God bless our church. May, may his hand be upon us as we care for each other, serve each other, and bear witness to the gospel in the triangle. Let's pray together before we remember what Jesus did for us through the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. I pray that uh, you would make us these kinds of servants, humble, compassionate, willing to serve. Thank you for the privilege we have tonight of calling you Lord, calling you Savior. And we ponder what you've done for us now and what you've given us to do to remember you in the Lord's Supper. We pray even now you would increase our love and devotion to you. In your good name we pray. Amen.